the 1960s. Bogart is dead. So, too, is film noir, at least in the classic sense. Unrecognizable now from the heyday of the 1940s, a once dark and dominant footprint of Hollywood now overshadowed in a cinematic landscape of biblical epics and Broadway adaptations. The ailing final years of the Hayes Code are ones of excess and bloat. Detectives battling their inner demons never stood a chance. It's an odd era for Hollywood. Few film buffs find more to love here than in the maverick decade that follows the code's collapse in 1968, but the rest of the world was hardly sleeping. By the 1960s, international cinema was a force to be reckoned with, pushing the boundaries of the medium in ways that Hollywood, by its own confines, was simply incapable of. But we're also dealing with directors who've spent their lives as students of the silver screen. Given that, it's no surprise that much of international cinema exists in conversation with classic Hollywood. You don't have to look far into the works of Akira Kurosawa or Jean-Pierre Melville to see they have film noir on their minds. We won't touch on those two tonight, though we will spend our time with two other masters of Japanese and French cinema, respectively. So, where does that leave our private detective? As the defining archetype of a genre that has died and lurched back from the grave, he, or she, as we'll see tonight, will always feel a certain weight from the pantheon of investigators that came before them. In a way, they're all just playing dress-up, cloaked in a borrowed genre, and as these self-aware shenanigans go, they're usually having a blast at the same time. Noir will live on thousand lives in a thousand spiraling directions, each building on the crumbling cities and the piles of bodies left by their predecessors. We're at a turning point in our season, and if tonight's films are any indication, we're in for a wild ride ahead. So fasten your seatbelts, tray tables in an upright locked position. It's high time the detective went international. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. O'Connor. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. It's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Belzer, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight, it's a whole new world here on Celluloid Dirt. I almost started breaking into song there. <laughs> We've left Hollywood behind us and have made our way to the booming film industries of Japan and France, respectively. Our business this evening is with two directors with titanic reputations, Seijun Suzuki and Jean-Luc Godard. Both played a major part in defining the vibe of international cinema in the 60s. And both are just impossibly cool. Ah, no argument here. We're going to kick things off in an explosive fashion as our detective goes up against the Yakuza. Here's Seijun Suzuki's Detective Bureau 2-3. Go to hell, bastards! such a fun title yeah it, it really is 
every time you say, it, just puts a smile on your face. All right, this is the the first film in a series that would make it uh, to two. Uh, Detective Bureau 2-3 came out in 1963 and was directed by the already prolific Seijun Suzuki. Um, He's already cranked out over a dozen films in the 60s alone by the time this arrived, uh, though he did not take the helm on the sequel. The film stars Joe Shishido as Detective Tajima. And uh, and, and so uh, our plot, we've got... We've got Tajima as a private investigator, and he's working with the titular Detective Bureau 2-3. Um, he is partnering with the police and goes undercover with a Yakuza outfit with the aim of helping bring down the hammer on an extensive gang war um, that's ongoing over American arms. Uh, naturally, his cover is blown, and he escapes in a fiery third act with the gang boss's mistress in arm. So, Fred... <laughs> Seijun Suzuki, he's a, an explosive filmmaker. Uh, what what prior experience do you have with him or with this film? Uh, I had not seen this film before, but I've seen quite a few Suzuki's and he's great. Uh, yeah, explosive is the right word. He just is so much fun and really gets the pulp sensibility of noir and crime flicks and but marries it with that sort of 60s pop art sensibility and it's such a potent combination and i every single one of those movies puts puts a smile on my face yeah i would i would say that suzuki and godard are probably uh at the very top of the list of of directors that that shape that 60s pop art into cinema they um they they're so much responsible for that 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 aesthetic that we think of and i i love love suzuki i love branded kill um that's oh that's actually one that i uh another one that i haven't seen i've seen uh let's see tokyo story tokyo tokyo drifter tokyo drifter tokyo story is a very different movie very different (laughs) tokyo drifter um and uh Youth of the Beast, which is essentially this movie, but better, I would say. Uh, I but it also seen Youth of the Beast. Youth of the Beast is great. I mean, it's it's also essentially uh, Yojimbo, but it's Joe uh, Joe Shishido as a former detective going undercover to play two yakuza gangs against each other in a Japanese city. And just playing, you know, playing the two sides uh, as he tries to hunt down, uh, you know, his partner's killer. I think that's his, there's like something involving his old police partner. I'm, I might be getting that detail wrong, but um, it's just like this ton of fun, bold with its colors and its characters, but it also like gives Joe more to do and highly recommend it. Yeah, this is the earliest Suzuki I've seen. Uh, I, I haven't I haven't watched anything of his prior to this. Uh, Gates of Hell's not too long after, and that's mm. I, I, I like that one quite a bit. Uh, but but you can you can certainly feel um, in in later masterpieces like like Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill, uh, and it sounds like Youth of the Beast that I'm I'm missing. You can feel him um, gearing up for those here, uh, and. Um, and, and it's uh, it, it's still a fun ride. It, I, to your point, I don't think it's quite a, on the level of some of his his others, but uh, but I really enjoyed getting to um, getting to tackle this one. Uh, I suppose a, a Japanese cinema in general, um, cons- considering we've left uh, left Hollywood behind, uh, just a, 
a few notes on on Japanese cinema. Of course, uh, the the post war era is inescapable here. Um, we you have uh, you have starting after the war, you've got. Uh, a real boom in Japanese cinema from the likes of Akira Kurosawa and Yasujiro Ozu and Kenji Mizuguchi and um, and and Japanese cinema in the 1950s is um, is is really taking shape. But Suzuki has such a different sensibility than all of those kind of, uh, I guess, for better or for worse, they're they're the ones regarded as the masters of Japanese cinema. Suzuki is. Um, Suzuki is no less masterful, but he is is just far more pulpy, far more playful, and this takes it in such a different direction than what someone who's been watching Ozu movies is is probably accustomed to. Yes, very very different from Ozu, whom I also love, but uh, who's wonderful, yeah, yeah. But it, you know, this is not a series of very carefully controlled and crafted domestic melodramas. This is. Uh, a bunch of guns and bombs and I'll be honest, I think he actually does himself a little bit of a disfavor because the opening is so good and strong and ends with this shot of a car on fire is the name of the movie plays. And you're like, Oh, we're going to, we're in for a ride. And then it kind of cools his jets for a lot of that too. And you're like, Oh, okay. We're, we're going at a different pace here. Yeah. I, I, I loved, I love that shot of the car. Um, I really, I really loved, and this is, baked right into the title um i i this concept of of hell mm-hmm. um and and fire and we we start with fire and we end with fire yeah. uh, we end with a whole lot more fire than than <laughs> just the car so it's bookended really really nicely um and uh and, and there's a definite strain of uh, a, a rumination on catholicism or maybe not it's maybe nothing terribly deep but but very much um, this is, he's going undercover um, as, a, as, as the son of a, uh, or as having been raised in a church uh, because he gave his address as, as a church. So they're forced to provide cover for him. I, I really enjoy the fact that Suzuki is engaging constantly here with, with the West uh, and, um, and that that's something that is just kind of inherently on the mind of a lot of uh, of a lot of filmmakers in in Japan at this time. Not everyone, but uh, but you you can see that the the American American occupation that's still occurring in in Japan is is very much present from the the opening frames. Yeah, I, I think it's a big, especially I feel like for Japanese crime movies, it comes up a lot because it's frequently a source of the guns. I mean, it kind of also reminds me of another. Joshishido film with a uh, cruel gun story, which has a, a small plot point involving where he's getting his weapons from for a, a heist. And it's being sourced from, if I'm remembering correctly, it's being sourced from GIs that are stationed in, in Japan. So I, I feel like it definitely it, it comes up a lot. It also kind of reminds me of because there's like one American actor right at the start to set up where all these things are coming from. And, and there's um, the, it, I don't know if you saw the conversation that came up after Squid Game exploded, where a lot of people were criticizing the 
English speaking actors who are playing the foreign rich foreigners who are oh, coming yeah. and yeah. watching the games and get involved in sort of the back half of the, the plot. So, there, you know, there's a lot of online criticism about like, these are terrible performers. Uh, paraphrasing what, what was being said online. And the, they, there was a couple of places that did interviews with some of the actors and the actors were kind of like, you know, I'm a guy who lives here, who is a native English speaker and there's not a big pool of us. So that's where they were drawing from in order to like fill in these very small supporting roles. And I feel like that's something you see a lot in that's uh, again, especially like these Japanese movies of, of the time of just like, all right, we've got a couple of like English actors who we can, who are actually not here as part of the military so we can hire them to do this stuff but they're not going to be the best actors and it doesn't matter because if you're you know just like for squid game it doesn't really matter if the english-speaking actors are good because primarily being made for a korean audience it's like the korean actors have to be good because that's the native language is being used and then the english part's getting subtitled anyway so it's it doesn't need to translate as well and so i feel like likewise here it's like here's a couple of actors who can actually speak English. And so it doesn't matter as much if their performances are good. What matters is if the Japanese performers or the people who are speaking Japanese can perform well, because that's the primary audience for this material. But it's still funny when you're watching like, well, this guy is a lot worse than everybody else. It, it's, it's so true. It's no different in Bollywood. It's, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, you see that, you see that pretty routinely elsewhere in, in the world where you just don't have that, that stable to draw on. And, and uh, honestly, not a, it's not a real knock to any, any movie. Anyway, my point is like, I don't hold it against the movie. It is what it is. And like the main performers who are performing in Japanese are doing great. So whatever. I guess uh, at the core here, what, what, uh, what we really want to talk about is, is, is Joe Shishido and is our, our detective is Tajima and, um, and and just kind of like position him within the the legacy of of film noir. How does um, what it, what is Suzuki doing? Suzuki was clearly aware of of this history of uh, of American noir and uh, and of crime films in general. Um, what's he interested in doing um, that is both honoring that tradition and also is distinctly distinctly Japanese, uh, distinctly Japanese pulp even. Yeah. I mean, to me, the clearest predecessor for what Joe's doing is Mike Hammer, especially the Mike Hammer of Kiss Me Deadly, right? Like going around in a suit, smoking, throwing punches, kissing dames. Like it is that, that level of pulp and that element of the, the classic noirs that's being invoked with what's happening here. Um, yeah, Suzuki's got uh, the, no way is is Kiss Me Deadly not a uh, 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 on his mind here, uh, right? Very much part of it. But then, instead of the gangsters of U.S. cinema that are drawing on bootleggers and Chicago and those strains, obviously we're dealing with the Yakuza here, which is a very specific. Uh, bit of culture that that is being incorporated and folded into the detective genre there's such a, a comic element to when those gangs show up it's like a clown car and mm. and people just pour out of them they're just out of uh, out of nowhere and and the 
those those set pieces are largely bookending the the film so there's you know long stretch in the middle where it, it calms down a bit and and we don't get that it's also for the action, but when the the one guy who got booked is being taken out and they do the like sting that i don't entirely follow in part i'm sure because of intricacies of japanese legal precedent of like why they couldn't arrest these guys until they almost shot the fake yeah like i you know that's a sort of the thing where i'm just like i I, there's i'm sure there's cultural context here that i just don't have but it it, it is still the same thing of like these these guys are just rolling out i mean it's it's almost especially at the end too when they start showing up and it's it feels a little bit more clearly color-coded or like set set uniforms um it, it almost just kind of reminds me of the warriors in terms of like or west side story of like you're not just in a gang but the gang has its own culture and identity that is being displayed very clearly you know yeah, whereas a classic hollywood if you had two gangs facing off against each other especially if it was like the 40s they'd all be in suits right like yep maybe there'd be an ethnic element to like a a racial identity element to it where it'd be like this is the irish gang and the italian gang or whatever that are facing off against each other but generally the way that everybody was dressing was sort of the same whereas here especially again at the end like there's one group that shows up and they've all i think they've all got matching jackets and you know it, it feels much more and i think also that again it's that that pop art sense of sensibility and almost comic book elements i think getting folded in as well of of really striking visual components that utilize the use of color right so i think it's the other thing here is that we're making the jump to color and we took a break from the detective season so i'm trying to remember but this is our first I, color episode right uh Yes, it is. And I didn't even really flag that as a as a point, but I'm glad you brought that up because uh because we we're really pushing the medium into a uh into a different direction. Out the window is the play of of light and shadow. We're not in chiaroscuro territory anymore. We um and in the sense that early 30s films are really concerned with with playing with sound in ways that you that you naturally would when it's a brand new element to the medium uh films granted color has been around for a little while but not it's not been as accessible uh to a lot of productions so so you really see put uh, a lot of directors pushing boundaries of what they can do with color uh, around this time uh, especially in foreign cinema right and i think also just technical limitations of how color stock was treated too is is influencing the way that it looks and the way that you're you are pushing that 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 color you know i think the other thing to me that popped in terms of uh elements that are specific to japan is japanese youth culture of the 60s right like we've got the scene set at the bar with the live music being played and he's kissing the gangster's mall and the teens behind them are like, yeah, kiss and start like forcing their heads together and try to keep making them, you know, it's, it's really interesting because you've got that. And then you've also still got the more classic quote unquote gangster cabaret of 
what his ex-girlfriend is involved with where you know like the christmas tree dance that they're all doing around the as elves around the christmas tree and yes oh i'm and we have another we have another noir set around christmas yes um, i mean this, it's such a potent uh, there's a reason shane black keeps going back to it right because it is such a potent like the ideas and represented by christmas of like purity and virtue and just really contrasting that with violence and um it's no it's, it's a potent combo so i'm not surprised people going back to it also even even in japan uh even in japan also a a big musical number in this too yes uh which isn't totally out of it hasn't really been a huge element we've gotten into some cabarets but it hasn't been a huge element in the noirs we've been been covering but the, it's not unheard of for for that to come sure. up and so it's it's and it's kind of a delight uh joe joe gets to jump up on stage and 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 show a real playfulness and right I, mean, I think that's the interesting right so and it's also interesting because i hadn't thought about this until now right so there's the the torch singer is such is a real trope of the genre but it hasn't been one that we've really encountered within the detective movies or the private eye movies and so i you know i definitely think this movie is drawing on that larger noir trope to to flesh it out but it's still of the ones that i've seen there isn't one where the male anti-hero gets up on stage with the torch singer and is like i'm going to join you no nope. it's going to be kind of like a fun <laughs> little number and where it's gonna be like choreography involved i was not expecting that <laughs> But it was, you know, it was fun. I, I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. So, but it's, it, again, it's that sort of interesting evolution. And, and again, that uh, to me, it speaks to pop art and rock and roll and youth culture in general. Because again, we also have like a pretty long that that sequence at the bar with the the band playing, and we cut back to that band and the teens dancing a lot, and we get most of that performance of that song interspersed with their conversation. So it's definitely, I think, engaging with that sort of larger teen youth, youth culture of the 60s. Uh, and, and I think that there's there, there's certainly an element where, you know, it's clear we're outside of the U.S. here because we, you, the you, American Hollywood, Hollywood heroes don't, especially of this time, don't tend to be in that kind of goofy, mm. uh, cut of that goofy cloth, I guess, that that uh, Tajima is here. And uh and, and you know you'll see that elsewhere in international cinema. I've been so I've been so immersing myself in Bollywood lately that that's like the the obvious. But it's it's very much a thing that that your male male protagonists in, in so many Bollywood films are are just dorks <laughs> and yeah. lovable dorks and um and and it's just a, a a certain like cutting loose that we don't see a lot from from the typical Hollywood masculine heroes no it's that yeah that american stokeness is uh and also i think already at this point and more so as we go maybe a little bit less during new hollywood but especially 80s and later uh, there's a real codification and even maybe um calcification of genre in american cinema where it becomes sort of like a horror movie is this kind of shape generally and this kind of emotional palette and 
we go really deep on doing that stuff well, but we don't go broad in terms of bringing in the rich, essentially the richness of life, right? Whereas like, I feel like a lot of international cinema, especially of, of this period is far more willing to engage in like life is tragedy and comedy at the same time. And American movies are like, no, a comedy is a comedy and a tragedy is a tragedy. And you don't mix those two things together. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, uh, it's a good call out, a real sense of like looking to looking to uh, play around with genre uh, on an international level that that American cinema is just not doing at this time. Well, I, think it's, um, I think probably part of it is just how much more of a big business it is here, right? Where it is that like, all right, we told the audience we're giving them a horror movie, so we got to give them a horror movie. And if we don't deliver precisely that, they're going to complain we're not making our money back. And, you know, I, I would imagine that the presence of like state funding and, and other avenues of, of uh, getting the money together to make a movie helps uh, give you a little bit more leeway in that regard. Uh, also, I, th- I, and I, I think your point is really spot on, but it also reminds me of there's a great film critic Hulk, film critic Hulk article that just came out on his Patreon that by the time this episode releases will be several months old, but I'll include a link in the description of the episode because he did examine precisely that because uh, RRR just came out on Netflix. So he watched that and then sort of discusses his own journey with Bollywood and starting to essentially having to relearn a new form of cinematic language because of the way that it is so different and has grown up independent from American cinema and so has its own way of doing things and specifically to what you're talking about has a very different way of approaching masculinity and how to you know how to present a male hero and accept a far broader like you said far broader array of emotions and types than just smirking cool dude who tosses off fun sardonic lines I um I love that. I want to read that. Uh with yeah, I think it's important to to whether it's Bollywood or or um uh, or Bergman or um or Seijin Suzuki whatever like find find someone that's doing something totally different, something that's out of your comfort zone and and immerse yourself in in that um and let your notions of what cinema is supposed to be just break down and then rebuild it and uh well <laughs> um we're about to get to the master of doing that <laughs> oh yeah um, in a few moments before we do i in the in your notes here i i actually really am curious about this so what do you see paul schrader responding to just the catholicism of it all like I, the I think the catholicism i, I think the catholicism and violence are yeah. um are are just kind of uh omnipresent here and um and and certainly uh the um, that conf- that conflict in this case it's coming from the the east and west um, mm-hmm. being laid on top of one another uh, i I feel like Schrader's probably familiar with with Suzuki and his his work, but this more For more sure. so than even the other ones this one just with that Catholicism um, strain running through it it's an interesting way to look at it of sort of a similar juxtaposition but filtering it through Schrader's like, you know, Brissonian aesthetic into a much more subdued with bursts of violence kind of thing, as opposed to this, which is so much more like two-fisted. Like this is another, alongside Kiss Me Deadly, this is another great two-fisted pulp noir. No, no kidding. 
while while you bring that up and considering it was right in our last episode i noted uh, i noted a little bit of trivia here uh from from our episode that links that links uh detective bureau 23 go to hell bastards to kiss me deadly mm-hmm. uh so uh, uh the the actress in this who played um who played irie who was uh the the suited uh bespectacled um uh, Girl at, Friday. Uh, um, at, yes, at the at the bureau. Yeah. Um, she is she is linked to Cloris Leachman um, by both of them having played having voice acted um, the same role. Obviously, one <laughs> in, one in Japanese, one in one in English, um, in one of the the great adventure movies of all time. Um, that would be. Uh, Miyazaki's Castle in the Sky. Uh, oh. They were they both voiced Ma yeah, Dola. Sure, I could see that. So, fun little, and she was fun. We didn't even talk about some of the supporting. Like she, I, I yeah, liked her she was a blast. Uh, I'm glad you noted who, because um, I was actually trying to figure out who, she, who, what else she had done. So that's that's really interesting. Um, I, I I did not see uh, I did not see really much else on her on her resume that I recognized uh, that I I'd, I'd already caught, but that caught my eye and uh, it was a fun connection. That's neat. Um, and I, I just want to bring up again, also before we move on, and we talked about it a little bit, but there's just some of the most striking things for me in this movie were its use of color, especially red, like the the one gangster's apartment where his girlfriend is. Like every time he comes home, he's like, you've been cheating on me, haven't you? Like that's how they keep their life. There's, there's their relationship spicy, but that whole apartment's always lit in red. And there's just some really striking, like, already striking uses of, of that, which I think uh, Sajun just gets better and better at as, as time goes on. I mean, you know, and then really you does. like, yeah, Tokyo Drifter and how it uses colors. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Clearly, clearly I, I'm curious how long he'd been using color at this point for, for his films. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. I think it been a bit. Uh, also just to, because I finally looked this up, after seeing him in several movies, but Joe, you know, Joe's cheeks. Yes. <laughs> and it's actually a very kind of, I think, tragic story that oh. he uh, had gotten plastic surgery to enhance his cheeks to look more masculine. And so they are artificially inflated oh. um, huh. to, to look like memorable. that. Uh... And, you know, I think part of it is also a cultural and time period shift that it doesn't breathe i mean anytime i see him it's, it's just it's like what is up with that man's cheeks but it that turns out that's you know it was the same as somebody in classic hollywood like getting work done in their nose or what have you to a, a match a more classical quote-unquote standard of attractiveness um but it's a bummer man i don't know it, it's oh. it's a little, a little distracting be just a little sad to be like and to anytime any actor feels compelled to undergo surgery just to meet these other standards it's like eh. wow i had no idea yeah i finally had to look it up I, I it's it's no human being has had cheeks like that that's for sure huh. well i don't know i say that who knows probably somebody somewhere possible <laughs> all right those are all, all my right. little sides what I, I think it's covered everything I've got written down. So, with that in mind, let's uh, let's move over to Europe uh, and on to uh, Jean-Luc Godard's made 
in USA. It is the evening of the day. I sit and watch the children play. Smiling faces I can see, but not for me. Released in 1966, Made in USA arrives midway through what remains to this day one of the craziest directorial sprees of all time. Jean-Luc Godard's 60s output is paradigm-shifting, bonkers, and dynamic, and this film lands right at the transition to his more heavily political late 60s output. It stars his former wife and frequent collaborator, Anna Karina, as well as Laszlo Spado, Yves Afonso, and Jean-Pierre Leoud, with cinematography from Godard mainstay Raoul Cotard. It is adapted from, well, <laughs> um, uh, I guess let's get into that. Uh, so Godard is, the, uh, Godard is the last person you would want adapting your work, mm. uh, I think, as an author. I don't know if there's a director out there that uh, is going to feel less reason to have any fidelity to source material. Uh, he's citing inspiration from The Big Sleep, but more, more primarily Donald Westlake's The Jugger. So The Jugger is one of the Parker novels from Donald Westlake and one that Westlake himself didn't even particularly like. Uh, Parker is a professional criminal and heist operator. He's later played by the likes of Robert Duvall, Mel Gibson, Jason Statham, but most notably by the great Lee Marvin in 1967's Point Blank One Year Later, uh, which is a wonderful movie. Um, One of my favorites. It's so good. Actually, Uh, I think, I, I feel like that is also influenced by detective bureau or Sejun's like pop because i feel like that use of color and even just the style like the we even talk about this but the promotional image that we're using for this episode on the website of um joe wheeling machine gun in a suit in a cut gray suit i'm like that looks like lee marvin in yeah it does but it's also not a not an image from the movie it's an image that they just did anyway that's different movie Uh, i'm uh, well, and <laughs> I'm a, l- a little hard in the in the opening on like late code era Hollywood, but Point Blank is a is a example to the contrary of of just a, a great film firing on all cylinders that can come out of still come out of the late code. I, I'm very excited for when we eventually get to that for some either movies about vengeance or killers with codes or something. But we'll definitely get to that. It's going to be great. Yes. Um, so, uh, despite. Despite uh, Point Blank and and all of these other actors who've played Parker later on, um, Godard gets the first adaptation and it's Anna Karina who plays the first cinematic version of Parker by some weird stroke of fate. What happened was Godard's producer, uh, Georges de Beauregard, Beauregard, Georges de Beauregard, um, had told Godard he had obtained the rights to this book although that wasn't entirely true. He had partially paid for them. Um, so Godard made the movie um, and it is it bears no resemblance uh, whatsoever to, to the source material, which might've been fine, except Godard went around telling 
people announcing that he it was an adaptation of this. Um, Westlake sued. Uh, the litigation was tied up for a long time. Um, and, and Westlake arguably only succeeded because Goddard had been publicly claiming that this uh, was an adaptation, though you may never have known it. Uh, Made in USA did not get a US release until over 40 years later, uh, in like 2008 or some, somewhere around then, uh, with Westlake, who died right around that same time, promised the money from the film's American release, which I'm sure was was uh, minimal. Minimal. Also interesting, um, too, I, I'd seen that Godard made this as a favor to Beauregard because uh, De Beauregard because his previous movie that something something had gone wrong and fallen through, and so he like did this as a favor, and then De Beauregard did not cross all his T's and dot all his eyes. I yes. guess. Um, it, it's it's a weird, wild story to adaptation, and then um, and then the plot doesn't. Uh, gosh, this is this is my second viewing of this and and the plot is hard to follow it makes the big <laughs> sleep look like an ozu film um anna karina stars as paula nelson uh not parker paula nelson uh who throws herself onto a madcap odyssey searching for answers related to the death of her ex-lover bodies pile up the police will start meddling uh, Marianne Faithful will perform an acapella rendition of As Tears Go By and uh, in a dreamy little approximation of a bar. Um, and uh, this is a, a, a political movie, as the film makes sure to proclaim Walt Disney with blood. Uh, and we, I guess, have to take Godard at his word. Uh, so, Fred, what was your experience watching this movie and with Godard in general? Right, well, as we discussed Prior to watching, this is my first Godard. Full stop. <laughs> going going to the deep end here, baby. You did, didn't you? I I thought it was. It'd been a while since I've seen it. I'm glad I had it on DVD because it was hard to come by. Um, yes, but I hadn't seen it in in quite a while, and I, in my head I was like, "Well, this isn't one of this is not entry level Godard, but it's not like the worst. You could you could go much further afield than this, uh, but it." Rewatching it, yeah, it's um, it's it's uh. I appreciated it. I, I I know enough to expect that, especially the farther along in Godard's career you go, the more it moves towards the theoretical rather than the concrete narrative. Right. And so I, I certainly wasn't taken taken aback by what I ended up watching, and I, I thought it was interesting. I don't know, it did feel very much like an experiment um, or somebody really just trying things and in a way that feels aligned with, like I said, when I read about it being a favor to De Beauregard, where he kind of seems like he kind of went in both in terms of how he adapted it and also just in how he filmed it and sort of went, what are some interesting things I can do that are going to be interesting to me and then maybe they'll work. Maybe they won't. Yeah. Uh, so this is, I've, I've seen probably more Godard films than any director, but Hitchcock, uh, maybe, maybe Bergman is like right, right up there, but I've seen a lot of Godard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not top tier Godard for, uh, nor, nor is it for anyone listening, what I would recommend you use as your, your entry point, <laughs> him, Fred. Uh, uh, Breathless. Uh, on the other hand, would be a would be a great entry point, um, and 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 also very much still con- concerns uh, it 
concerns the image of Bogart. It concerns mm -hmm. um, that it's the beginning of him breaking apart cinema. And mm -hmm. Godard is someone who likes to take things apart. Um, yes, he, that's definitely what's happening here. He wants to deconstruct narratives that we are accustomed to. He wants to reassemble them in in ways we haven't seen before. Um, he likes to see what makes something tick. Um, he's not interested in delivering on um, on standard narrative promises. And, and in the, the French New Wave in general, that's where him and, and Francois Truffaut kind of start to really diverge as mm -hmm. the, the 60s move along. And, and, and with Truffaut going um, for a more audience-friendly uh, mm -hmm. approach and Godard not giving one damn about that at all. <laughs> you know, up until, you know, uh, what's his most recent goodbye to language? And, you know, he's still chasing that rabbit of just what are the limits of what cinema is capable of? Not not narrative cinema, but just cinema. Yeah. He says, uh, the fact that he's still, I'm, uh, he hasn't made a film in four years, but uh, the fact that he's still alive and kicking and, and inventing and, uh, he's he's truly the most legendary director still still alive <laughs> um and and i love godard um i i think this this is a it, it's a i guess it's a challenging film but that might not be the right way to to put it, it it's um it it is it's a really i think it's a really fun film to dive into having been immersing ourselves in so much noir Right. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's not it's not a crowd pleaser, but it is something with uh, a movie with something to say about a lot of the other films that we've been watching. And also just to bring up, you know, you flagged here Alphaville. So we talked about doing Alphaville for this, but we ultimately decided to keep that one in the chamber for if when we get to a planned noir meets genre season where we look at the trappings of noir intersecting with sci-fi and fantasy and horror and all the ways that it gets taken apart and put back together in which Alphaville would obviously be a very key piece of. So we purposely saved that one and looked to Made in USA instead as one of our international examples of the private detective at work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and and of course, key to key to this movie um, and and its its success, everything that works about it is, is Anna Karina. Um, she she is no longer Godard's wife at the point that they um, that they made this, but um, they've been frequent collaborators. And and for me, um, she brings out the best in his movies. Um, I my my favorite Godard movies are are Perot Le Fou and A Woman Is a Woman. Um, I think those are are both absolutely top tier of his and and not coincidentally both of them uh both of them uh star her and uh, and she's just a she's just such a good fit for his manic uh restlessness and uh you know always a delight to watch and she's clearly taking she's having fun uh, and 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 something like this without a sense of fun would be really tedious to watch. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree with that. Also, I've not, obviously not seen much uh, Anna Karina either, but um, although I've seen a few of her projects with other French directors, but neither, you know, there. Uh, no, I agree. She is, she is great. I mean, some of the 
moments that work for me are moments, even just moments that pose her against a wall with an interesting paint scheme on it and juxtaposes that with, with an interesting previous image and, or montages through it or something. And just all of a sudden like, oh yeah, this is like accessing the the core strength of cinema of just image and sound and time all working together to create a, a striking moment. Yeah, uh, I, I I think that uh, Godard movies are often um, they're not always the sum of their parts, but like those 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 parts can be really really fascinating. Um, whether it's a whether it's a montage or just an image or uh, it, and they can add up to a in, in the best of cases they add up to a really really um, wonderful whole. But uh, but even still, he's he's very good about finding those uh, finding those moments through color, through image, through sound idea of it working in parts is is spot on for me i mean there are moments within it that stand out for me and then there are other parts that kind of blur together so you know for example the that's the singing reference in the bar really works well for me because it completely abandons anything about the detective thing and does like a ionesco riff on the bald soprano and and like anti-theater and just being like what is language man and it's a really fun scene it is uh and and so you know you don't have to go you don't have to go too far along to find those moments that that you you take that that joy in and i think that can uh for for most viewers that can be pretty sustaining for a lot of godard films uh he he does go off the political deep end and, and they're very much, he's making, he's making statements um, from, from this point to, on his to career the there. Uh, yes. It's, and it's, it gets more, it, it gets more intense as his films go on in the late sixties into the seventies. The uh, but, um, but this is, this is kind of a ideal balance of the more playful uh, mm-hmm. films of his, of his mid sixties uh, with, uh, with what he evolves into I feel that yeah but you know it's also the I don't know it but there are also times where I, I will say for me it felt st- like a student production or a little I don't know like just ways that certain basic information about a scene or would be conveyed or wasn't conveyed with you know there were a lot of times where a camera would just suddenly reveal that another character was in the room or that we were still in the same room, but in a different setup. And I would just become very disoriented. And, you know, Mayakopa could be intentional to, as part of a disorienting effect, or because there's definitely other parts of it that, you know, like the frequent looping of uh, shots or bits of dialogue where like the same beat will repeat it's clearly drawing attention to itself as a film object. And so, and by, it may have just also been, I, I, and I do think I felt it more earlier on. So it may have also just been a period of uh, acclimation to what this movie was doing before I was able to kind of lock in on how we're approaching cinematic language. But I, I, so I don't know, it, it just sort of, like you said, from section to section felt pretty different in terms of what it was doing and how it was doing it 
Yeah, and I, I don't think that Godard is particularly concerned with uh, with things like continuity or <laughs> um, or establishing a scene. Uh, these are these are things he's actively choosing to to not make an effort to to engage in, and uh, and, and that is uh, it is very disorienting. Um, uh, it's. It, just like you were talking about earlier, uh, it's it's like learning a new learning a new cinematic language, uh, and only in this case you're just learning Godard's own in, interior language instead of uh, <laughs> instead of one that that is necessarily uniform throughout a culture. Godard is is um, has certain commonalities with other French New Wave directors, but but he is. Is, is certainly on the the more avant-garde end of of all of them. If you're if you're really looking to dive into French New Wave, uh, Francois Truffaut is is probably your easier entry point. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So, but you know, I think we're talking a lot about the texture and style of the movie, which is a lot of what the movie is about. But I think it also does have some interesting things to say about the detective and how it's sort of playing with that trope and noir, you know, it's got her going around in the trench coat, whipping out guns and lost, you know, looking, looking for someone, but is trying to unravel a conspiracy that doesn't make sense and veers into the absurd. Yeah. I, um, I really think that, that, that this, this film um, and and I suppose this is true of a lot of, this is true of Godard films in general, uh, but it's something that kind of starts here that I haven't, haven't noticed in, in cinema before Godard. Uh, it feels like his characters are playing dress up in mm-hmm. a genre. And Perot Le Fou is that with, with a crime caper, a crime spree. It, it is, uh, Breathless is a little bit more abstractly that, but, uh, but this feels like, um, very consciously, like like she is, um, she is climbing into a trench coat, and she is is putting on the, um, put uh, putting herself into the noir genre because uh, because it's fun because it's a uh, mm-hmm. because it's a thing that that is cool, and and for better or for worse, uh, often often for better, uh, I I think a lot of noir a lot of neo-noirs anything from here on out things that are very consciously about a genre like reservoir dogs like um like brick um movies like that feel like like they are uh probably brothers boom is even more uh of Mm. a a obvious example of that but like it it feels like people are 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 in these situations are because they're dressed the way they are because it's cool. They're sure. they're where they're positioning themselves within a genre that has passed, and they know it, um, and they're having fun with it. And and none of that is a bad thing to me. I think that I oh, think yeah. that that's it's kind of great. Yeah, but I think it's also interesting that those are a little bit more modulated, where it is sort of a yes, we're doing this because it looks cool, but there's still a filmic reality that we want you to buy into, where these are quote-unquote people going about and quote-unquote doing things you know what i mean where it's like there's a reality you know we want you to believe somewhat that this is happening whereas i don't think Godard wants you to believe that this is happening he's like yeah there's some like guys i know and we 
put them in suits and like yes. we're we're doing our best Bogart. Like, isn't this cool? Yeah. Like he's um, like no, turn, it's, essentially it's a, turning and looking at you through the camera and being like, "Can you believe it?" <laughs> it it's it's more so it's more so with Godard than with um uh, it's than with anyone else. It's so it's so apparent that he he's like taking this this genre that is already just kind of past just over the hill just past its prime and he's like i'm going to keep it going um we're going to we're this is a love letter to noir it starts off dedicating itself to um to nicholas ray and samuel Mm -hmm. fuller uh it um it is it uh and it's filled with characters who are are named after various um not just noir but american figures um or not even just more more than american there's a there's doris mizuguchi right (laughs) godard is is wearing all of his influences on his sleeve um so in in terms of positioning this uh, uh, amongst the the private detective uh one this is one of the only examples in our uh and certainly the first that we've gotten to of a of a female private detective which is refreshing um it honestly i i like this so much just because it it is such a break from what we've been going through and mm-hmm. and to see that you know the the it, this this realm of the private detective it is not exclusively american um it may have started there but we've moved beyond that um, it's, it does not have to be exclusively masculine either. These are, these are archetypes that can be worn by anyone, um, that can be assumed by anyone. And why wouldn't you want to be a private detective? Right. Uh, it's, it's fun. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I, I agree. And as also, as another one of the reasons we picked this is that there are unfortunately a limited number of and, and very few options of films that are primarily about a private detective and that private detective is a woman um you know i think it's played with a little bit in a sort of pastiche way in, in certain films but it, it just does not come up that often um you know something else that going back to the conversation about detective bureau to me something that is like identifiably french quote unquote about this uh, i mentioned the unesco before is that it does feel very in touch with the theater of the absurd and sort of taking the detective archetype and recognizing the way that those plots don't make sense. Right. I mean, like big sleep is the go-to example of you are just lost in a sea of signifiers and trying to build narrative out of it to figure out what's happening on a very like abstract read of the movie but the movie's still delivering on a very narrative focus like he's going here he's asking these questions he's doing this and i think it just sort of takes that and turns the dial up on that element and says all right we're going to really make it the detective is lost in an abstract cityscape and is still trying to put narrative together but it's literally trying to put narrative together not just trying to solve the case yeah and that it is truly an abstract cityscape you are you feel very untethered from from place here uh, the, the Suzuki film it grounds grounds itself. I can't. It felt like there were parts of the Suzuki film that were being shot very clearly on a set, but there were others where they were were shooting. Uh, in. That very cool secret staircase that in the bottom of the garage. That was like this is a 
Bond villain and it is yes. awesome. Yes. Uh, the, the Suzuki film uh, grounded itself nicely in, in location, uh, but Godard is just un, unmoored from, from anything recognizable, really. It's, um, it, it's a series of, of sets and, and that's okay. That's great. It wasn't even uh, said. I mean, it, to me, it felt like it's just like with the cast. It felt like these are locations that I had access to, and then we're just going to make the most of them and see how. Like the garage that they keep coming back to, barely justified why they're there, but it's just like this is a space uh, that we can afford, and so we're we're going to incorporate it in. And you know, again, that's sort of like you said, the the dress up feeling of like we we got it, we got the trench coat, and we've got some a camera and we've got some locations and we've got a fake gun. So let's make a movie. Yeah. Um, and, and the, there's, there's a real, um, I, Godard, Godard is in so many ways, he feels like a scrappy underdog, even though he's kind of, uh, became such a, a Titanic figure in, uh, in international cinema, but both him and Suzuki, I think that's something that, that binds them together is they both feel like unlikely auteurs at first. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Godard's reputation, obviously his influence is, is just colossal, but so it's easy to forget that. But like, this is, this is not like Kurosawa or, or mm-hmm. Bergman um, or Antonioni where, where they're, where, where they're playing at a, a level of uh, more artistic mastery that that's not what they're, that's not what Godard and Suzuki are concerned with here. Right. No, I, yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to approach the idea of the auteur and sort of saying like, yeah, that you can still draw on a clear through line of artistic obsession and expression, even though it's not expressing itself in that same way. And and for that reason too, Godard, and Godard makes this pretty clear in the, the movie uh, by constantly um, make, uh, turning over the bullhorn to some political statements but like he this is he is he is well positioned to uh to be speaking to the class elements of noir he is he this is not a big studio production this is this is someone who is um is on the ground just making do with what he's got uh making films for a minuscule budget and um and 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 I, it feels like uh, it feels like it's still channeling some of the spirit of that um, that class classism that's at the heart of um, classic noir. Mm-hmm. Huh. Uh, what bringing it, bringing these both together? Um, so one thing I noted: uh, noir is noir is by this point in the past, and I'm. I think it's important at this stage in the um, in our podcast to assess, like, all right, well, if noir is if noir is behind us, um, what does that mean going forward? And especially in these early kind of years, and and I was I, I was reminded of um, a really really wonderful take by uh, on one of my favorite filmmakers, Wong Kar Wai, uh, by. Um, Akbar Akbas and in his book Hong Kong Culture and Politics of Disappearance and and his and his argument when he's talking about Wong Kar Wai in that book is is when when something is vanishing there becomes a real drive to establish what that identity was um, and that was happening 
in Hong Kong in the 1990s as it began its transition to Chinese autonomy. Um, and, uh, and that's when, when you get Wong Kar Wai having uh, Chunking Express and Days of Being Wild. And, uh, and he's, he's clearly reflecting on that transition and trying to establish an identity for, for Hong Kong before what, what it was before doesn't exist anymore. Well, that's very much happening um, right here in the 60s. It's happening with the Cahiers du Cinema and the, the French New Wave crowd as they, as they seize on this vanishing genre film noir. Uh, and, and, and they want to they want to define it. They want to keep it alive. And so it's not going to be the same that it was. But I think these these early movies after Noir's heyday are super important to consider because that they they clearly have a love for this genre and they want to preserve it and they want to keep it going into the future, even though they know it's not going to be the same. I know I really like that take, and I think it also relates to your opening keynote about how we're also seeing the rise of directors who grew up with the movies and I think that's a big part of it as well is you know that it is to a certain extent uh, kind of akin to what like the current craze of doing 80s Amblin style movies admittedly that's also driven by like corporate interests and it is not coming as much necessarily from a similar place of just love and trying to preserve and there's also obviously we're talking about a 30 to 40 year gap and so that's a little bit more about like you grew up with this and now we're going to give it back to you because you just want the sugar so we can give you the sugar whereas this feels much more you know let's preserve an art form but I, I think it is that that element of movie lo- lovers who can have the identity of being a movie lover and so wanting to play with the things that they loved on on screen yeah it's so spot on um and that's gonna that's going to shape what the the rest of our season is because we're gonna be diving into we're we're beyond classic noir but we're very much going to be dealing with directors who um, who who have been raised on it and who love it and who uh, who so apparently love it in the films they're going to be making. Yeah, it's interesting because we've got, you know, our next couple of features, we're, we're still making some last minute changes to our plans. Uh, so there, there could be some other stuff in the mix here, but uh, looking ahead, you know, we've got a couple of detective movies in the 60s that are... All, I, I, already it's sort of that like we're commenting on the thing that was done not this is a thing that is happening right like even though they are taking the noir and the detective and putting them in the 60s it is still also very much to my reading being like is aware of its predecessors and is commenting on those predecessors and then shortly after that um we're in the seventies and it's the retro noir of Chinatown. It's the start of neo-noir with uh, the long goodbye. You know, those are, I mean, and I think the long goodbye definitely also draws on the, uh, what we're going to be talking about next episode. So it's, and, and I'm very curious to watch these and try to think and 
nail down the specifics and the tangibles of what indicates that because as a vibe, I can absolutely say that my camera films that we just watched feel like this is a thing that's happening now. And I've been watching the movies for our next episode and it's like, this was a thing that was happening and now we're going to dress it back up in current clothes. And it's a difference of a couple of years, like five years, but it feels like we're, we're talking to the dead, not we're having a conversation with a living thing. And it's so, so interesting. I'm, I'm really interested for us to talk about why, especially in the U S that couldn't continue because something's something's changed the sixties are just such a, a, an odd, an odd decade for American cinema. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm excited for next week's um, episode too, uh, just to, just to dive into what that change looks like. Right, because like Suzuki is doing on a, on a certain, like very basic level, Suzuki is doing a, like I said, I think it's a clear continuation of my camera stuff, but also like, Barlow uh, is engaging with a lot of a lot of the same like cultural context and taking the noir genre and putting in that context but there's just something about like Suzuki is just sort of saying it and the Marlowe film which is directed by Paul Bogart unrelated is saying it in quotation marks you know what I mean like it's saying like a detective quote-unquote is doing things where Suzuki's just like yeah, this detective's here and he's he's just going around and like solving crimes and punching people. <laughs> um, and, and I don't know, maybe it is also, you know, we've talked about Dragnet and the larger like cultural shift in, in addition to not just the youth culture that it, that is going to be on display in both these, both the um, movies that we talked about today and, and our, our next episode, but also within America, that move of 1950s, like post-war, the majority sort of being like, all right, we're all buying into the system now. Like the system is going to treat you right if you go along with the system. And I wonder if just culturally, there's something about that where you have to, you, you can't, earnestly say i'm going to be against the system because you're going to be mocked for it almost right whereas but if you so if you have to come up with it almost a, an ironic like we're doing the thing because we we loved the thing but it doesn't really relate to the current moment because the system's pretty good right everybody like i wonder if that's the underlying thing about the difference in approach yeah i think i'd i'd, I'd almost want to measure it we're going to get one snippet of this in looking at noir but it's broader than that it's more mm-hmm. it's 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 all it's all genres and mm-hmm. and so i i think a, a wider net would be it's it's its own separate discussion right uh but it's fascinating and and we'll be we'll be diving into it and i'm so curious to uh to kind of pick that apart a little bit more next week where does that even bring us? What, what have we, have we, I think we're, we've talked a lot. We have, we've done, we've done a good job. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's, it was, I'm really glad that we, you know, took this trip at, abroad and sort of looked at other cultures taking noir and kind of refracting it, especially coming right at the end of the classic American noir period. And I think it helps say a lot, you know, there's, um, you know, the idea of like, reading foreign newspapers to understand your own country because 
they're they're able to more objectively right. assess what's happening. And so I think it's sort of a similar thing here where both of these movies in taking sort of the the core identity of the private detective specifically and extrapolating it outwards in in different directions, but also very clearly sort of saying like, okay, we, we watched all that and this is what to us is the essence of it. And either it's the like the pulp sensibility or it's the um, more like abstract literary purpose of like what is what does the detective do within a narrative and how can that be utilized in different fashions i i love that yeah and i just such a such a a necessary perspective at this point in the Mm -hmm. the season to to get uh the right time to get it also Uh, because you know we watch a lot of movies about white dudes going around and doing stuff so it's nice to break it up a little bit exactly uh so too too many movies about white dudes perhaps um but uh but i i think um we're gonna try and tap into some um some more interesting corners of the cinematic universe uh coming up in in our in our uh next portion of the season but first what's in the box uh in honor of kiss me dudley what's something you watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase Fred. I completely forgot about this. I got to go check my letterbox. Um, I guess we could just talk about the Northman because we have very different opinions about it. Um, oh. <laughs> and we were talking about it a little bit before yes. uh, before we started recording because uh, I quite liked it. Um, my favorite Eggers is still The Lighthouse, but there's a lot that is really working for me in this, but it's such an interesting... I don't know. It, it was very clarifying for me in terms of his aesthetic and, and not that this is an original thought, but how much he is just about the immersive experience and not just in like the research, which is obvious and what is frequently talked about, but also his use of wonders and the way he issues classic narrative structure for films and instead really tries to replicate the narrative format of the time within the confines of a movie, which I think is true of, of all of his pieces, that they're all sort of like, if you took a camera and gave it to a Viking in the ninth century or to a Puritan family in the 1600s, or if you gave it to a, a wiki at the turn of, at the end of the 19th century, like, and asked them to recreate the stories that they were telling, but in a camera, within a camera, this is how they would do it. And so there are elements that kind of, great up against our very efficient way of that we've learned to tell movies because movies have become very efficient at like delivering the goods and this is instead very trying to trying to very directly adapt a lot of oral traditions really into into movie format so i don't know that it's always a perfect fit or always works but i always find it interesting and there's a lot for me to recommend about the northman but i know that wasn't your experience uh, I, I I was not quite a, a, as big of a fan as you were. Um, I, the Witch remains my favorite um, Eggers film, actually. Uh, sure. But um, but you know he um, I, I I think that he is a he's a director who I am always going to be rooting for, and I want him to make whatever whatever vision he has. Northman didn't quite land for me, but uh, that's that's all right because I, I had a pretty good. Um, week of of movie viewing i i caught up on some some that i missed 
over the last uh, last couple of years and uh, and did both First Cow and Uncut Gems, which I, I like them both very much. Uh, I mean, Uncut Gems will definitely get to at some point. Uh, Uncut Gems was is just such a relentless, exhausting, stressful movie. It's a heart um, attack for an hour and a half or two hours, it, however long it two, is. Two hours. The fact they can sustain it is really remarkable. Um, and and a very good reminder to never count anyone out because because Adam Sandler is legitimately wonderful in in that. Did movie. you were you up on the, at the time when he's um, he was like if if they don't give me an Oscar nomination for this I'm gonna go back and make the, he's like threatening to make more Happy Gilmore movies <laughs> um, he was like if they don't recognize mostly joking sh- but in, in acknowledging his own uh, oh totally. Uh, he gives a great uh, Independent Spirit Award speech that year when he when they rightfully recognize his his performance. Yeah, um, he's he's just so good in it, and um, and I I cannot wait to see what the Safdie brothers do next, and eh, uh, maybe less so what Adam Sandler does next. But I heard th- I I think I heard just recently that he was going to reteam with them for something. So yeah, I know he's, he's teaming up with them again. You should listen to. Uh, Oh, I think this was on the A24 podcast. They, because they do, they'll bring in two people within the A24 universe and have them in conversation, generally in conjunction oh, with the A24 huh. release. I'm pretty sure it was on A24. So, because they had uh, the Safties talk to Paul Thomas Anderson, but they're all talking about, or talking about working with Adam Sandler. Aha. Oh, and great. I think this was the conversation that like led to uh, Benny being in Licorice Pizza. Huh. That's great. So, but it's also just a great conversation between some great movie makers. So, uh, worth worth to listen to. Yeah, um, I, I want to check that out. And uh, and First Cow is a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, I uh, I just uh, something that uh, I don't know. There's there is a a languidness to it where it just took its time and, and let a friendship really blossom. And, um, and it is, it is a bit haunting and a bit tragic. And honestly, um, the, the other, not, not because of a lot of direct similarities, uh, uh, but, but the film that, that came to mind when I was watching it was McCabe and Mrs. Miller um, mm. just for the kind of pitch. It was also Rene Aubert, jean uh, being sure. in a book ending his career a bit dearly dearly departed uh yes uh and but but i i think something like the some something where it's it is existing within the confines of a western but it is at the at the fringes and sure, it is more sure. concerned with um more concerned with moving at its own pace and uh i i, I don't know it, it works really well for me and i think it's uh i think it's her best film i mean it's the I've tried Riker a few times. There's the first time that it's really she's really clicked for me, and and so I'm Mix, excited to Mix go back. Cutoff worked worked well for me. I, I enjoyed that quite a bit, but this was even better. I yeah, so I'm I'm I'm, 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 I'm actually finished any brother movies because I've I've started to put them on and then just haven't been able to connect. But I feel like going back to early conversation, like this is me kind of learning her specific cinematic language and being like, okay, now I get the wavelength and what what and how you think. And I'm excited to go back and, and finally engage with some of her other stuff and, and be a little bit more open and receptive to it. 
some I haven't done this in a while, but sometimes there's just this real pleasure in taking a director and and binging. Um, like at some point I did that with Hao Shao Shen and just by the time I was like on like film seven or so of his, I was so in love with his style. Well, of, I mean, him especially, movie. he's just so like, <laughs> like doing his thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it, you know, what position watching a movie, you know, in context with what other movies you've been watching around it is going to have mm. an effect on that. So sometimes sure. it's nice to get a break from what you've been seeing. Um, and sometimes it's also nice to just like dive into this person's worldview. And, you know, that, that um, might be great for uh, a lot of directors, or maybe if it's something, if it's someone like Bergman, it will start to really depress you <laughs> over time. Panic there, somebody like that, he's like, oh God. Yeah. Lars von Trier, it's like, ah, yes. How do I go on living? <laughs> Maybe don't do that with <laughs> Lars von Trier. <laughs> okay. Um, well, this was right. a long, fun it episode. Was. Hopefully, other people enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed talking about it because it's some interesting stuff. So, oh, what we're doing next? No, <laughs> Not done. Uh, we're, we're, we're closing it out. Uh, thanks as always for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next time when we return to America just in time to see what toll the 60s were taking on our classic detective. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend.